Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thank you for joining us once again, everybody. And welcome to this week's episode. Yes, thank you for coming back. Before we get into today's case, let's take a moment to thank our most recent Patreon supporters. I'll let you do it, Bethan, as I know you fucking love it. Oh, I do. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters, but most especially this week, our newest. Becky Dunkley, Rachel Wilkinson, Uma Hughes-Collins, Katie, Tracy Cunningham and Michelle. Thank you so much, everybody. Yeah, thank you to each and every one of you and, of course, to all of our existing Patreon supporters. If you want to get... uh on this ride and uh, enjoy some Patreon benefits. All you need to do is head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. I love that you're still laughing at yourself. So (laughs) what you won't have heard, listeners, is that Mark accidentally spelt one of the listeners' names wrong when he wrote it in for me to say, so then he realised that I was saying it funny. But he's still chuckling to himself. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I found this so funny, but I'm going to explain, actually, because I put Uma Hughes-Ollins and I'd missed the C. How, whenever has Ollins been a surname and Bethan goes, Uma Hughes-Ollins? I just rolled with it as well. I was was a professional. Didn't even question it. Uh, So this week's case takes us to Phoenix, the capital of the US state of Arizona. And I've definitely not uh, done a case set in America for a long time. So it feels good to be back uh, in the US of A. Lying approximately 500 kilometres east of Los Angeles, Phoenix is the fifth most populous city in the United States, and it's famous for its desert environment, which is said to be comparable to the Sahara, which sounds very appealing at the moment considering we're in the middle of a freezing winter. Lying in the southernmost portion of Phoenix is the urban village of Ahwatukee, the scene of the crime that we'll be featuring in today's episode. Ahwatukee has long time been considered a prosperous neighbourhood and that's why the community was so shocked to its very core in November 2004 when a 24-year-old man was executed outside of the AMC movie theatre. Now, before we get to the events of that post-Thanksgiving assassination, I just wanted to give a bit of background as to why I've decided to cover this case. The director of the film American Murderer, Matthew Gentile, got in touch with us a couple of months ago and told us about this case, and I'd never heard of it before. And it's the subject of his new film, which is available to watch in the US on various video-on-demand platforms via Lionsgate, and which opened internationally on the 30th of January via Universal. And it's a brilliant film. It's brutal because it's told solely through the eyes of the assailant, but it does give a real insight into the mind of a killer. And not just any killer, but a killer who didn't really have this in him. Oh, this is so interesting. Isn't it? And I love I love taking inspiration from anything like this. We've had a couple of uh, cases before. So Kim Yong-nam and then the murder of Tupac and Biggie. Both of those cases I was inspired to cover because a film, uh, in that case, a true crime documentary feature film was being released. This is slightly different because it's, Matthew calls it true crime drama I think so um, his film is based on on the events that we're going to go on to talk about today but Matthew is a huge true crime fan he's an avid listener of our show and he said he would love for us to do something on this case and as I said I love taking inspiration from things like this so here it is. When Lena Rodriguez opened the door to her suburban home on the 29th of November in 2004, she knew immediately that her 24-year-old son Robert Keith Palomares was dead. 
He had recently taken up a position with the armoured transportation company Dunbar. And just to explain here, Dunbar is like the UK equivalent of Securitas. It basically provides cash in transit services to banks and retailers. Lena knew her son's job carried with it great risk. Although Dunbar guards were armed and fitted with bulletproof vests back in 2004, they still put their lives at risk every single day as they transported hundreds of thousands of dollars around the country. But Lena knew that Keith, as her son preferred to be called, was excited at the prospect of taking on a job that would help him one day fulfil his career ambition of becoming a police officer. So she tried to put her fears to the back of her mind, like any mother would. But when that knock at her door came and two police officers were stood on her doorstep with a solemn look, she knew, any mother would have known, that her boy was dead and that her life would never be the same again. Speaking in an interview years later, Lena said, I just knew, I said, my son's dead, isn't he? And the female officer said yes. Lena described her son as kind-hearted and said that he just loved people. She said he was very giving and would never leave the house without telling her that he loved her, even if she'd done something to upset him, because he believed that tomorrow was never guaranteed, which is so prophetic in this case. Keith had married little over a year earlier, and his sweetheart Desiree was utterly bereft at the loss of her husband. This savage act of violence had reverberated around the community of Awatuki and shattered the hearts of Keith's loved ones. But just who was responsible for such a cold-blooded murder? Well, in order to answer that question, we must go on a roller coaster ride. And it begins on the 1st of July in 1969, when Jason Derrick Brown comes into this world on a labour ward in a crowded hospital in Orange County in California. Born to parents who were active in the Mormon community, Jason's upbringing was... You said Mormon really funny then. You said Mormon. No, I knew I did. I knew. (laughs) It's like how I say Argos. I'm just going to carry on. Sorry, is that just how you say it? And Amazon. I think it's just how I say it. Oh, okay. I thought you'd said it wrong. Sorry. Mormon. You say Mormon. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So he was born... I'm going to say Mormon. So he was um, born to parents who were active in the Mormon community. I still said it wrong. Jason's upbringing was typical of the era and of the location. Growing up on America's West Coast, Jason had a typical all-American childhood. He learnt to surf in the Pacific Ocean, he played golf in the endless Californian sunshine, and he was a popular student at Laguna Beach High School, where he spent his formative years. On the surface, the Browns were a typical American family. Successful, pillars of the community, the kind of people who enriched the neighbourhood in which they lived. But of course, behind closed doors, it was a different story. It always is, isn't it? Jason's father John was a successful businessman and would often take the entire family, including Jason's brother and sister, on road trips to Mexico, where he would conduct nefarious but very lucrative business deals. Not much is known about Jason's father, but despite his Mormonness, I think it's safe to say that he was a bit of a dodgy character. He was more like (laughs) Mormonness. I couldn't think of another way to explain it. He was more than likely involved in various criminal activities, I would say at a white-collar level, and in the mid-90s, when Jason was in his mid-twenties, his father disappeared. Detectives investigated his disappearance and found that he had drained his bank account shortly before vanishing. Months later, his car was found abandoned, but he was never seen or heard of again. Like I said, we don't know much about John Brown, but I think perhaps he'd gotten in over his head with some random drugs cartel in Mexico or something like that, and there was perhaps a price on his head and he just had to disappear, and so he did. But his father's disappearance would go on to have a profound effect on J-Boy. 
Having followed the predictable path of high school, college and a couple of years working as a missionary in Paris, during which time he learned to speak fluent French, Jason's life went off the rails in his mid to late 20s. And of course, this did coincide with his father's disappearance. When his father vanished, it appeared to affect Jason on an almost cellular level. It was like his DNA changed. Gone was a level-headed, ambitious, hard-working Jason. In its place was a party-mad, hedonistic, self-centred man-child, hell-bent on taking what he could from life. Friends of Jason have described his life in the late 90s as being one long party. They said he loved to drink and take the party drug GHB, one of Bethan's favourites. He lived a nocturnal life. (laughs) Of course. Well, I did it because last week or the other week, I nearly did it and you were expecting it and I hadn't done it. So That that did make me laugh. And it is one of your favourites, isn't it? (laughs) God. So Jason lived a nocturnal life, frequenting bars and nightclubs at night and sleeping all day. He also began visiting Las Vegas regularly, where he would gamble heavily and, of course, ramp up his partying to new levels. To coincide with this life of excess, Jason had developed a newfound sense of materialism. He became obsessed with money and cars and watches and overt displays of wealth. He was fun to be around, though. He picked up the tab and friends said he always had wads of cash with him on nights out. How he was funding this lifestyle was a mystery to those in his inner circle, however. We know now that he was a con artist, a prolific scammer, and there's actually a great scene in the film American Murderer where Jason visits his mum at her home. He's in his mid-thirties now, his mum's retired, living in a quiet community, and he is this absent son, really. He only visits her when he wants something. And it's just so sad to see this scene play out because his mum confronts his demands for cash... I think he's asking for something like $80,000 from her for some bullshit investment. And she calls him out on this. And you can see the absolute shame on her part in having a son who is clearly a bad penny. And then the absolute denial on Jason's part that he is in any way what she says he is. And it's just, yeah, it's just really sad because she's desperately trying to get him to see sense and to find a new path and to put all of this behind him. But he can't not carry on and he can't not lie to his mom even though she's saying you're lying this Mm. isn't true you need to stop this and he he just can't he's hell-bent on this path of conning everybody around him yeah it's really sad and it's played out really well so yeah jason doesn't listen to his mom there's an altercation towards the end of the scene and jason doesn't get any money off his mom but this whole scene just typifies his approach to life really because he feels he's owed a living and no one is beyond reproach when it comes to finding his next mark, not even his own mother. So my point is he was basically funding this lavish lifestyle at the time through a whole myriad of scams and cons. No one was off limits and I dare say that he tried to rope various friends and relatives into dead-end so-called investment opportunities, which would just then see him flee with their cash. So, you know, really bad guy. And of course, you can only get away with that for so long, particularly in a small town, because sooner or later, everyone will have gotten the measure of you and you'll have run out of future marks. So Jason moved on and spent time living in various cities on the west side of America in the early noughties. No one ever recalled him having a proper job. At one point, he set up a modelling agency with some associates while he was living in Texas. The agency would target pretty girls on the street and fill their pretty little heads with promises of modelling stardom in exchange for a $5,000 fee. 
Obviously, the $5,000 would be banked and these women would receive nothing in return but a set of shitty headshots. And I mean, I kind of admire him for this approach. At least he's not um, conning family and friends at this point. He's kind of trying to set up something semi-legitimate, but it's still terrible, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And it's, I mean, technically, he's told them that he'll get them photos and that's what they're getting. Like, it's one of those things of like, it's really close to the wire because if you're if you're charmed by somebody and you go with a company that's not legitimate and you don't end up with great photos all people will say to you is well you should have gone with a proper modeling agency and kind of make it your own fault again and they won't you won't get as much sympathy so he's and he's going to get away with that obviously people will stop coming to him soon enough because everyone will realize that he's not a proper legitimate photographer or has no connections to modeling agencies but yeah, you can understand how that would quite easily happen, especially in this time as well, before social media got massive and everyone could be rich and famous just off of that TikTok or something. Like now you can kind of, you'd have, you can basically take your own good photos yourself anyway. But at this point, it was that real like start of everything, isn't it? And you can understand how it would, people would fall for it. Yeah, I think it was one of those few opportunities people had to be discovered and to get into the modelling industry. It's totally different now, like you say. Um, and yeah, he, he there wouldn't have been any contracts or anything. He would have just been taking advantage of these girls and making a lot of promises. But technically, there'd have been nothing uh, that he was committed to doing on their behalf other than providing a set of photos. So um, kind of still happens, this sort of thing. But I would say he'd just kind of move around to different towns and different states across the west side of the US and uh, and do this. Uh, when he would get found out in one city, he'd move on to the next. I don't know if you know this about me when I was younger, Mark, and this is, I didn't like try and scam people out of money, but at this sort of like, where, so basically I would say it was like probably 20, like 14, 2015 sort of thing. So later on than this, but still mm. phone cameras were terrible, that sort of thing. And I had really decent camera and I really like photography anyway. So I would do photos for bands for like their promo shots and stuff for obviously my space because that was what was big at the point and um so I'd go and take photos of them with my nice good camera and get into the gigs for free to go and take the pictures and then give them the pictures and I'd have got into the gig and probably got a drink or two for free how did I not know this isn't that funny like I'd kind of forgotten that that was something I did when I was younger but it was just really lots of fun anyway because I enjoyed doing it and it was local bands that I loved and people that were friends or acquaintances and yeah I'd just go around and do photos for them sometimes we'd have a little photo shoot as well one of those really cheesy like let's go down this alleyway and stuff like that great in another life in another life I could see you having done that and being a photographer actually I could see that suiting you loved it would have loved it So back to the story, Jason was also committing serious check fraud around this time and he was never short of cash. But can you see how this is all very much white collar crime? Obviously, he's a bad guy, but he's not acting out violently. He's not selling drugs to kids on street corners. And I just wanted to kind of make that point because when the violence does come in this story, it appears to come out of nowhere Maybe out of desperation, but still, I just find it difficult to reconcile. And I think when we come, yeah, when we come to the events of 29th of November 2004, 
when Jason does execute this 24-year-old man in broad daylight, in cold blood, to me it just felt so out of left field, so weird. Um, so see how you feel once we've once we've gone there. In 2003, Jason moved to Arizona, where he began renting a house which he found through a local realtor named Ellen Robinson. Ellen owned the house next door and was impressed by Jason. He told her he was a successful businessman who imported golf stuff, and she knew straight away that he would fit in well within the neighbourhood. And in true Jason style, and he, I have to say he is played brilliantly by Emmy-nominated actor Tom Pelfrey in the film, he befriends basically all of the neighbours and charms them to the point where they are eating out of his hand. And I can imagine Jason arriving in this little enclave in Arizona like an absolute whirlwind, this was a guy who was a chameleon. He could read people and be who they wanted him to be. And I think that was how he managed to manipulate people. He would become their best friend. He would impress them. And then he would use them ruthlessly. Oh, this is so fascinating. I'm gonna have I'm really gonna have to watch this this film. Yeah. Because it's such, just it, he's such a character. And had he not gone on to commit this horrendously violent crime then he's almost a bit like an anti-hero in a way. You would have, I think, throughout the film been championing him to get away with all of this. But actually, yeah, it's it's such a shock when when we see what happen happen. So as quickly as Jason arrived in this town in Arizona, he left. In early 2004, he told Ellen and some of his neighbours that his brother's wife had cancer and that he had to go to be with them in order to support them both in their hour of need. No one knows where Jason really went at this point. He seemingly disappeared for a few months before turning up at a gun shop in Salt Lake City. He took a four-hour class there in firearms handling and the instructor remembered Jason first picking up a gun at the start of the lesson and thought to himself that this was someone who was clearly very inexperienced in handling firearms. Jason held it awkwardly, almost as if he was scared of it probably exactly how we would hold a gun, but it didn't take him long to become acquainted with it, and by the end of the session he'd become almost cocky, arrogant even, when he was handling this weapon, and he liked the look of it, he liked the look of him with it in his hand, and when the lesson was over, Jason went into the shop to inquire about purchasing a gun of his own, and after a long discussion he eventually opted for a forty-five calibre Glock Model 30, a compact, popular handgun. Jason filled in the relevant paperwork at the shop and had his photo and fingerprints taken as his standard procedure. Despite what we might think in this country, America doesn't just hand out guns in Walmart. Checks have to be made, records obtained and filed. But it is still probably too easy to get a gun. Two weeks after his visit to the gun shop in Salt Lake City, Jason returned to Arizona. He called realtor and former next-door neighbour Ellen Robinson and asked if he could crash at hers for a couple of weeks. She obliged enthusiastically. There are scenes in the film showing just how enthusiastically. (laughs) But to be fair, I've got to make it clear, the film is only based on true events. And I can't remember exactly now, but I don't think the character in the film is actually portraying the real-life Ellen Robinson, just someone kind of based on her, um, because there are some very graphic scenes, shall we say, of the two of them together. So I don't think Ellen actually, in real life, had any kind of intimate relationship with Jason. She just really liked him. He was good to her son. He was an entertaining character. So, yeah, she was happy to put him up for a couple of weeks. I think this is often the case, isn't it, with a true crime story, is like the main protagonist is almost 
completely truthful. There's obviously some embellishment and of course it's an actor, but like the storyline of that main person. But the people on the fringes of the story are quite often moulded to fit what will make a better yeah. better film. Yeah. So that's hilarious that they've gone, oh, we'll add in a little bit of a naughty part because that's what people want. We want a sex bit. I, I don't think it is technically Ellen in the film, but yeah, they've they've done a kind of very similar yeah. like character based on it's the a real life. And it could yeah. even be based on like a few different characters from yeah. the real story. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes that happens. Because what was it? Anna Delvey, the case with Anna Delvey, there were a couple of people in that that were um, kind of a mix of... Yeah. A mix of people that she interacted with rather than specifically one person. Yeah, that could have been an amazing series, the Netflix series. It was good, but I think what I hated was the introduction of that character, the police detective who was trying to kind of nail her or had uh, nailed her and was sort of getting her talking in prison. She was so annoying. But anyway. Oh, yeah, she was irritating, wasn't she? This guy kind of, with the cons and stuff, reminds me a little bit of Anna. Like, not at the same level. But I think, naturally, you have got to be, by very nature of what you're doing, you've got to be really confident. And Jason was super confident, as was Anna, certainly. Yeah, there are some similarities there. And I think that's why it's so shocking that this story ends in a very different way to Anna's story. So what Ellen didn't know at this point, so this is the real Ellen, um, as Jason was lodging with her, was that he had already set the wheels in motion on a deadly plan to rob that Dunbar cash-in-transit truck on the 29th of November and to commit murder if anyone got in his way. Jason's return to Arizona was the second step in executing that plan. The first had been obtaining that gun. Jason spent the following week or so conducting surveillance outside the AMC Theatre in Ahwatukee. Parked up in his car, he would watch as Keith Palomares and his partner James Duncan pulled up outside the movie theatre before Keith would then run out of the truck to collect the weekend's takings, which he would then place into a hold all before getting back into the truck and heading off to the next job. So I don't think there was any kind of sophisticated um, briefcase or anything that the money would be put in. It would just be like a hold all. Jason would clock the timings, he performed reconnaissance in the area, working out the best route through which to escape, he assessed how busy the area was, working out how long he would have to perform this robbery and hit, because I think by this point he'd probably realised that in order to get the bag of money, he was going to have to use that gun. Everything had been planned meticulously. Jason had planned the hit to coincide with the Thanksgiving weekend. This would be a busy time at the AMC Theatre, one of the busiest weekends of the year. There'd be a lot of money for Keith and his partner James to collect that Monday. How much was anyone's guess, but Jason possibly theorised that it would have been a lot more than he ultimately ended up getting his hands on, which is very sad. Not that there's ever a price on a life, but... Yeah, when it's when it's less, when it's a lower amount, it's it makes it all the more poignant that somebody has lost their life for that amount of money. Yeah. And we've seen it before where people have turned up and then they're out of their depth. You think of like Brinks yeah, Matt and yeah. stuff where they turn up expecting one thing and then they're out of their depth, but it's more. Yeah. Um, but this is like the opposite, which is yeah. Do you think, like, if he knew that, maybe he wouldn't have gone through with this plan if he'd have learned actually the figures? Because I feel like this was the Mm. end game for Jason. This was him, I'm going to do one big hit. There's a huge amount of risk here if I get caught. 
but it's going to be worth it for him and he's then going to disappear and live off the spoils for a long period of time. Okay, so the day before Thanksgiving, Wednesday the 24th of November, Jason's preparation stepped up when he drove out to a nearby national park to do some target practice. Weirdly, he ended up firing a bullet through someone's truck and agreed to pay the owner $1,300 to settle. And this single event would prove to be crucial in pointing the finger of suspicion at Jason for the events that were to follow. So I'll explain a bit later. In the days leading up to the robbery, Jason moved out of Ellen's spare room and into a hotel opposite the AMC. On the morning of the robbery, he paced around the hotel. At one point, he was seen deep in conversation with another man. Some people have gone on to speculate that this was an accomplice, but I'm not so sure. At approximately 10am, James Duncan pulled up close to the AMC theatre and Keith Palomares jumped out before making his way into the cinema where he conversed with the staff who were familiar with him and the procedure of handing over the weekend's takings. Once Keith had placed the money in his holdall, he headed out of the theatre and towards the waiting armoured truck. However, almost as soon as he stepped into the outside, he was ambushed by Jason Brown and shot six times. And they've called it an ambush, and it really was an ambush. Five of the six bullets that were fired at Keith hit him in the head, and he just didn't stand a chance. Jason grabbed the hold all out of Keith's grasp and made for a bicycle that he had parked nearby. He then raced through an industrial estate on the bike towards his car, which he'd parked on the edge of town, and he was on his way to Orange County within a couple of hours, leaving a trail of devastation in his wake. Back at the crime scene, James Duncan, the driver of the armoured cash-in-transit truck, was completely unaware of what had just gone down. The truck was essentially hermetically sealed. It had to be. It was carrying hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. The windows were bulletproof. James didn't hear any of the shots ring out. The first he oh, knew wow, of what so happened... Oh, wow, he's just sat there just like oblivious. He's just sat there waiting oh and probably thinking... Probably thinking, oh, this is taking a bit longer, but then maybe he was thinking we knew that the cinema was going to have been busy over the weekend, so there's going to be more money than usual, so that's why it's taking a bit longer. Like, oh, Keith loves Um, to natter. He's, like, always chatting to the people, and he knows these people well. Yeah. So the first he knew of what had happened was when a member of the public ran up towards his van and frantically pointed at the movie theatre. So James wasn't allowed to get out of the truck because that was company protocol. And I suppose if you're sat in the truck and someone runs up to you, a member of the public looking panicked and pointing at the movie theatre, you might be thinking, actually, maybe... um, maybe Keith has been targeted. So it is really important then to stay in the truck because if you come out of the truck, you are going to be putting yourself at risk. So it is procedure for him to have stayed there. So what James did do was inch forward the vehicle uh, so that he could see the outside of the movie theatre. And then very sadly at this point, he saw his partner lying flat on the ground, covered in blood. James then um, immediately got onto the depot who called the emergency services and when they arrived they took Keith away but he was pronounced dead very sadly on arrival at the local hospital. Keith had been holding $56,000 in that bag and that was the price ultimately that had been paid for his life. 
Um, so it is a lot of money. It's a lot of money, but it's also not a lot of money. Like, it's do you know what I mean? It's a lot of money. The, and if someone handed me $56,000, yeah. like, wonderful, incredible life, that's going to really make a difference. But it's also not life-changing enough to make any of this worth it for for his death. Like, this is just madness. Like, you can yeah. tell that... Jason must have thought that there was going to be a lot more than that. You wouldn't kill someone, surely, just no. just for that. When you're, you know, one of your scams you were asking your mum for like 80 grand, this would be a small amount for him or an average amount for him. Yeah, he could have easily got that kind of money from successfully pulling off another scam. So yeah. I think there is anecdotal evidence. Or even evidence. just armed robbery without actually shooting him. Like, yeah, yeah hold the gun to his head and take the bag and leave him shaken and really traumatised, but not dead. Like, what the yeah. fuck? But I, I think there is anecdotal evidence that Jason thought there was going to be closer to $200,000 in the bag. And of course, wow, okay. it's still not worthy of the price of, of someone's life. But you could at least kind of understand the motivation a little bit more. And this is nearly 20 years ago. So yeah. in today's money, you're talking that the value of nearly half a million dollars. Um, but yeah, it was only $56,000 in that bag. After changing cars in Las Vegas, Jason Brown made his way to his sister's home in Orange County. It's not thought that she was aware of Jason's heinous crime at this point. He lightly sweet-talked her into letting him stay for a few days, as he had no doubt done countless other times. During his stay with his sister, she and Jason went out for dinner together and watched movies in the evening. And it's not known what Jason's plans were at this point, because this was a really risky strategy. Did he really believe that detectives had no clue that he was the guy who was responsible for this robbery, for Keith's murder? And if he did believe that they had no clue, well, he was totally wrong, because just 24 hours after the killing, detectives had put um, his name to this robbery and I think it just again shows his sheer arrogance that he thinks he can get away with this so he's gone to a relative's house just a few hundred miles away from the scene of the crime. (laughs) Yeah what an idiot. Yeah so if the police um, put his name to it then they're gonna kind of look at all of his associates his family and visit them. So I I don't think he uh, thought that they would put two and two together. Um, But actually, the police had discovered the bicycle that Jason had used to make that initial getaway. And despite him attempting to clean the bike in order to remove all of his fingerprints, one full print had been discovered, and it was a perfect match to a print with his name on it, which had been taken uh, following a crime he'd committed four years earlier. Oh, my God. I mean, he's he's attempted to clean it, but he's missed up. Like a missed One, enough yeah. of it that he's had a whole fingerprint. And I'm yeah. not being funny, but bicycles aren't exactly difficult to clean. Like there's not lots of little nooks just and crannies. Just the fucking handlebars. Yeah, just clean the handlebars. Yeah. And the brake. Oh. But he'd not done it. Yeah. Um, mm. So yeah, he, he'd committed a fairly trivial crime four years earlier, which I hadn't bothered to kind of mention. But he had stolen some expensive golf clubs with his brother. And I think they used to work as a pair here and there. One would distract the shopkeeper while the other would half-inch the clubs. Um, but yeah, officers had witnesses of the assailant making his getaway on that bike. And then they recovered the bike and matched the print to Jason Brown. So, you know, it was already pretty damning. But when they dug a little deeper, the evidence against Jason really began to stack up. 
the purchase of the gun a couple of weeks earlier, the spent ammunition from the crime scene, which matched the ammunition that was found at that national park where Jason had been doing target practice and had shot at that random person's truck. That random person had now come oh forward. Oh my God, so he's given them the money yeah. to like be quiet, but he didn't bother to take the casings or the bullet or anything. No, that no. Was actually... Oh, I mean, I'm so glad, but also what a yeah. stupid mistake. So detectives were so confident at this point that exactly a week after the shooting, they held a press conference and released Jason's name and image to the media. And it was a picture of him taken from when he'd purchased that gun. Him stood there in a red hoodie, surfer dude hair, wry grin, and he was their number one suspect. And they obviously wanted to find him. And we'll put the picture on our social media Um, But I think that's also something that captured the public's imagination about this crime is that Jason, who was 35 at this point, he looks like he really does look like this man child. He's 35 years old, a bit weathered from the Californian sunshine and the Phoenix sunshine. And he's got these kind of frosted tips on his hair, you know, very sort of like 90s look, even though it's now 2004. He looks like a surfer dude. He's wearing this bright red hoodie. And he does not look like the kind of guy that would go on to commit um, an absolutely horrific murder. But he did, basically, even though he's never been tried for this. He is the FBI's number one suspect. Of course, Jason became aware of this press conference. He freaked out and did a bunk from his sister's place just in time because officers think they missed him by just two hours when they eventually turned up there. They were soon on his trail, however, when they tracked him to an ATM in southern Orange County and then in San Diego, where he'd used another ATM. And it was clear at this point, based on his movements, that he was headed for Mexico. Police put out alerts with Border Patrol, but the trail went cold. Jason stopped using his cards and cell phone at this point, and there was no sign that he actually ever made it to Mexico, or to the border even. In fact, he posted something to his brother a while later, which had a Portland postmark on it, and that's in Oregon, which is very close to the border of Canada, so it did look like Jason was now headed for Canada, perhaps. His car was eventually found abandoned at Portland International Airport two months after the shooting, and it appeared as though it had been there for around a month, and experts at this point theorised that Jason had crossed the border into Canada before probably heading east into the French-speaking territories. There have been multiple sightings of Jason over the past 18 years, but he has never been found. He was placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list in 2007, where he remained until last year, before being taken off in favour of some other high-profile fugitive. Oh my god, like, imagine if he knows this film's been made about him, I mean, he probably does, like, wow. He's so narcissistic that I didn't expect that we wouldn't ever have known what happened to him after this, I was not expecting this, Mark, I'm gonna be honest. I thought that we'd know more. Like you've, you have hinted at this a few times and mm. saying things like he wasn't necessarily convicted and charged and blah blah blah. But I didn't think that he would just completely go off the radar. It's quite smart to make a trail that looks like you're heading south, and everyone's going to yeah. go, "Well, yeah, you're going to go across to Mexico," and then do a little switcheroo and head upwards. Uh, totally. Very yeah. Clever. I mean, this is. A- This is a clever guy, to be fair. But yeah, you know, this guy vanished into thin air in early 2005, has not been heard of or seen since. There have been multiple sightings, uh, hundreds, thousands of sightings over the years. And as I said, he was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. And when you go on a list like that, 
Uh, it attracts a lot of attention. So there's been lots of shows that have featured this case. Uh, and obviously now we have the film American Murderer. And I've read some interviews that Matthew Gentile has done, the director of the film. And, um, you know, he's kind of said that Jason Brown is so narcissistic that he will want to come forward probably at this point to put right some of the narrative that is in the film because some of it is speculative and he is the kind of guy that will want to come forward and say, no, I didn't, you know, do that or I actually partied here at this better place. Yeah, Um, (laughs) I banged her and her friend at the same time. So, (laughs) you know, he's that kind of dickhead that he would... Um, almost send a letter to the media or to the police to say, actually, no, um, you know, it was slightly different to that. Um, but yeah, he, he has never been um, seen or heard of since. Some people have speculated that he integrated back into the Mormon community in Canada. Some say he may have even ended up in Thailand. And there have even been rumours that he reunited with his father, who, of course, had disappeared a decade earlier. And perhaps he did Kindred spirits, two criminals cut Mm -hmm. from the same cloth, maybe now working together. Father and son reunited at last. Who knows? It's possible. But it's crazy to think that Jason Brown may be out there, probably is out there, but he could be living next door to you, working in your office, a free man having gotten away with murder. All the while, Keith Palomero's family and friends continue to grieve for his loss And he had everything to live for at that point in his life. He was 24 years old, um, but his life came to a bloody end in a hail of bullets and all for $56,000. So what I find, as I said, really, what I find really fascinating is that Jason had never shown any tendency towards violence. He didn't build his way up to committing this murder. It came out of left field and... To be fair, I have to kind of repeat this. I have been saying throughout the episode that Jason committed this crime. I suppose we do need to be fair and make it clear that, yeah, he was never tried in a court of law. He remains the FBI's most wanted suspect for this crime. He's not on the most wanted list anymore, but he's their number one suspect. But actually, I suppose we can't be 100% certain that he was responsible. That's a good point, yeah. Yeah, and there's this talk of this accomplice on the day. Maybe it was the accomplice that committed it. But Jason's name gets released in the press conference and he panics and thinks, shit, I'm going to go down for a crime I didn't commit. I think he was uh, guilty of Keith's, Keith Palomero's murder, but he might not have been. Um, but if he was, how did it escalate so quickly for him? That's what I really want to know. This is absolutely fascinating. Great episode, Mark. Really interesting. It's a really interesting story and Jason Brown is a a really unique character and as I say in the film he is played so well by Tom Pelfrey. Um, he really gets under the skin of the character. So yeah, I do recommend uh, the film, absolutely recommend it. Uh, it's available as I say uh, internationally as of now. Check it out, Google it and see where you can catch it. But yeah, thank you to Matthew Gentile for getting in touch and giving me the inspiration to uh, cover a case that I wouldn't have ordinarily covered because I tend to stick to the UK. Um, But yeah, it's a fascinating case. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you've all enjoyed this episode. And um, yeah, if anybody else wants to get in touch with any recommendations, please do. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, consider those absolutely. So until next time, we will see you for another case. Bye. Bye.